Welcome to The Landscape, your show about parks and public lands, and these days, renewable energy. I'm Kate Gretzinger in Salt Lake City. And I'm Aaron Weiss in Denver. On the show today, we are taking a trip down the Rio Grande with journalist Danielle Prokop and photographer Diana Cervantes. We will find out what they learned as New Mexico faces the new climate reality of a river that is not so grande and runs dry much of the year. But first, Kate, a little news, if you would. Two foreign uranium mining companies have announced plans to drill more than two dozen exploratory wells on the edge of Bears Ears National Monument. The Salt Lake Tribune's Brian Maffley reports that Atomic Minerals has partnered with Kraken Energy to develop 324 mining claims across more than 6,000 acres of public land in San Juan County, Utah. This land is adjacent to Bears Ears National Monument. Both companies are headquartered in Vancouver, British Columbia. Atomic says the BLM has already granted permits for 25 exploratory wells, which are basically just deep holes in the ground, and has required the companies to post about $60,000 in bonds. The uranium claims were staked last year under the General Mining Act of 1872, which still governs mining on national public lands today. The claims are on land that were originally proposed for inclusion in Bears Ears National Monument, but ultimately left out of the final maps signed by President Barack Obama in 2016. An attorney with the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance told the Salt Lake Tribune the project demonstrates the problems with the 150-year-old mining law written in an era of land exploitation with no environmental safeguards. He called it crazy that a company can just drill 25 wells that are literally a stone's throw from a national monument with almost no notice or environmental reviews. And along those lines, the White House is finally weighing in on the permitting reform debate. White House Energy Advisor John Podesta says the president supports Senator Joe Manchin's permitting reform bill, and I use those words reform in some pretty serious air quotes. Uh, Podesta stresses that while there are parts of Manchin's plan that the president doesn't like, that is the nature of compromise. Uh, just as a refresher, Manchin's proposal would put a hard two-year deadline on most environmental reviews, and it would also approve the Mountain Valley Pipeline, which is Manchin's pet project running natural gas out of West Virginia. Now, we've talked before on this podcast about how putting artificial deadlines on NEPA, the National Environmental Policy Act, it's not the solution. The problem is fundamentally a staffing problem, especially at the Bureau of Land Management, in getting just a handful of these more challenging reviews done and out the door. Now, the good news is that the White House is now all in on reforming that 1872 mining law. A fact sheet from the administration points out that the 150-year-old law is in fact the underlying problem here. Folks stake claims wherever, even in places that it doesn't make sense to ever mine, and then, of course, the permitting process is going to take forever, projects are going to get denied, because this is a law that was written in an era when mines were a few acres at best, hundred, couple of hundred acres at best, and that makes no sense in our current era of industrial-scale mining that also, of course, results in industrial-scale levels of waste that you have to deal with. So the White House statement is now calling for, quote, responsible domestic production of critical minerals in a manner that upholds strong environmental, labor, safety, tribal consultation, and community engagement standards. And it adds that by responsibly permitting, managing operations, and remediating mines, the U.S. can set a global standard for responsible mineral development. Now, I thought that 
sentence was really notable because that is an admission that the U.S. does not currently lead the world when it comes to responsible mining operations. And that is both the problem and the opportunity when we talk about the energy transition and the need for EV minerals. Head back one episode in this feed for a great discussion about the 1872 mining law and how one bill in Congress right now that just came from Nevada Senator Catherine Cortez Masto would be a massive step in the wrong direction. But hopefully now with the White House involved, we may see some more activity on some positive ways to fix and really toss out the bulk of that ancient mining law. Right. And I'll just add in, um, we're still waiting on recommendations from an interagency working group convened by the Biden administration last year to um, offer suggestions on how to reform mining. So that report should come out soon. Um, We keep hearing that it's uh, about to be published. So keep your eyes open for that. More podcast material. Today, we're chatting with journalist Danielle Prokop and photographer Diana Cervantes about their recent series documenting drought on the Rio Grande River, which, of course, runs from Colorado through New Mexico into Texas. Danielle and Diana produced this series for Source New Mexico, a statewide nonprofit journalism outlet producing, I should note, some of the, the best environmental reporting in the West today. Danielle and Diana, thank you so much both for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Let's start with the basics. What made you want to pursue this series on the Rio Grande? Well, uh, first things, it's in our backyard, right? Diana and I are both from New Mexico. And the other thing is that there is a lot of focus on drought right now in coverage, but a lot of that does skew towards the Colorado River. And so we were hoping to really connect folks who care a lot about the Rio Grande, who maybe have never seen it, from an entire perspective, from Colorado through New Mexico to Texas, and and have them connect with the river that means a lot to them. Can you guys describe the river sort of from the beginning to the end? Um, Give us a picture of the river, and maybe you can both take a shot at this. You know, it's interesting. When you start in Colorado, it's lush and gorgeous, and you can see people actually recreating on the river. And then you get to New Mexico, and it starts to dry in patches, you know, there's still some flow, but then it kind of abruptly stops. And then you get to Texas, and there's nothing going on. It's just complete sand bed. And so it's interesting to see how we're all interconnected to this river, but it's so different for each portion of it. Um, So yeah. And and you know, I, I want to clarify here, the river starts and ends in two different places on the Rio Grande, right? It starts in the headwaters of the San Juan Mountains in Colorado. It's fed by snowpack in southern Colorado and northern New Mexico. And then it restarts um, actually out of the mountains in Mexico and out of the Pecos River. The tributaries of the Los Conchas and the Pecos refill the riverbed. Um, in southern Texas, but for a large stretch, which could stretch through Big Bend as it did this year, um, the river is dried completely. And and honestly, from Elephant Butte Dam in the middle of New Mexico through 90 miles of Texas, the river does not run except as a large irrigation canal during irrigation season. 
I think that brings us to helping folks understand what the river is used for, because it is it is obviously more than just recreation and more than just habitat. Absolutely. I mean, 80% of its water goes to agriculture, um, much like most surface water in the Western United States. Um, but that agriculture varies very differently. Um, up in Colorado, we, you know, we have potatoes in the San Luis Valley. We have alfalfa, barley. And then as the river winds through New Mexico, that changes. Um, there's obviously some agriculture, like in, in terms of livestock throughout this region, but it changes to the three sisters crops, right? We have corn, squash, beans, chilies, uh, um, onions, and alfalfa grown throughout the middle Rio Grande. Um, and then once you hit Elephant Butte, um, that changes drastically to pecans. Um, so there's still chili and onions being grown in southern New Mexico, obviously. Hatch green chili, the best in the world. Um, and then you hit pecans. And um, what used to be cotton fields in West Texas have transformed, not just within a lifetime, but within five to 10 years. Um, there is no longer enough water to wet fields at the beginning of cotton season. And so that has transformed into orchards of pecan trees. But of course, looking at these like long-term issues, the changes in agriculture also mean that the river chemistry, right, is, is affecting that. And one of the concerns for all these changes to pecans is that the river is becoming increasingly salty at its tail end. And that will possibly be ungrowable in in future decades. So you just touched on this, um, but can you say more about how drought is affecting the river? And especially, I, I think I remember this correctly, that it doesn't actually flow all the time, right? Or all the way to its terminus, its natural terminus. Um, could you say more about that? Oh, yeah. So the river... Um, the river hasn't flowed in its natural tournament, like to its natural terminus in the Gulf of Mexico, unless it's an extremely great water year, which we probably haven't seen for at least three decades, if not growing further. Um, but I will say that drought touched every portion of every part of people who we spoke with. And it's part of not just the watershed, but people's lives. And, and I think Diana and I can, uh, like, we spoke to so many people who, um, whose lives are, are changed and their perspectives are changing. Right. Like even up in Colorado, uh, we talked to Kyler Brown and he talks about how he has seen full cottonwood galleries die and just the, how drought is just impacting not only the river, but its surroundings. Um, even up in the Rio Grande National Forest, just the drought has exacerbated beetles, which have... <laughs> unfortunately killed off millions of acres of trees and so that was pretty stark to see and it's just drought is also a main component of what connects everyone I think like Danny said it has touched so many people I think that brings us to what's happening this year we've seen national headlines on the the incredible snowpack there is in California a great ski and snow season happening in Colorado how much of that has has impacted the Rio Grande so far? And is there a hopefulness of, well, maybe this will be one good year uh, as that snow melts? Or is, the, is it still looking fairly bleak? 
You know, we have not seen the atmospheric rivers that California has experienced on their snowpack. We do see like really good snowpack. Um, But I want to always be careful when we talk about record snowpacks now. Um, The snowpack of even 2020 forward is going to be smaller than snowpacks in the past 30, the prior 30 years, which were smaller than the snowpacks 60 years ago. And so it's always hard when you see those green snowpacks on the snow towel monitors and knowing that that's still less water than we had um, in, in prior decades. And, you know, when I was talking with folks who are studying snowmelt, right, we're, we're talking about um, the, the earth and the soils and so much of the surrounding landscape is so thirsty that for every, you know, 10 drops of water, two are being just lost immediately. So we're only getting like 80% of the water out of that snowmelt when that snowmelt would be like our water banks, like ensuring that water would be coming down the river um, further. Um you know, there, <laughs> so I always caution though, because there's, there's this idea that Diana and I discuss a lot about the green veil, which is, um, the monsoon phenomenon in, in, in Southern New Mexico and, or in, in all of New Mexico and Southern Colorado. And it's, you know, everything greens up during these seasonal rainstorms, but that doesn't change the effect of aridification and drought. And, you know, we had this interesting moment in a coffee shop about it actually. Yeah, so I was, it was after we had kind of completed our project and I went to a coffee shop to enjoy a cup of coffee and someone next to me saw me reading this book called uh, Salted Earth and he was like, hey, so I see you're reading this and I told him, oh, well, I'm actually here working on a project about drought and he, and it had, monsoon season had started and he looks at me and he starts laughing. He's like, oh, well, the monsoon season, huh? Like what a strange time to actually work on this project. And I, uh, and I just kind of, I didn't know how to answer them, but uh, I was like, oh, I've just went through this whole trek. And so, um, but that's just what people perceive, you know. This one little blip during the year of, of greenery and not telling the full story. Yeah, exactly. Um, Diana, that actually prompts a question that I have for you, which is talk to us about photographing drought. I imagine it's, it's challenging and tricky in a way that it's, not usually super beautiful. It's like, how do you how do you think about taking pictures that sort of um, show the drought? And then was it was it complicated at all by what you mentioned being there during the rainy season? Um. So yes, yeah, so photographing landscapes is challenging just because you're in such different terrain all the time. But I think what makes drought more difficult is it's not always just a slap in your face, you know, you see it, but how can I capture this? And so when we were at the, I think at the Vinton Reach uh, in El Paso, you know, we just saw this dry river bend and it was completely just sand. And so I, I thought to myself, well, how do I capture this, this, you know, this bleakness. And so I, you know, I got down to the level of where the sand is and took a photo from there. But I think it's just about finding messages in the landscape that are trying to tell you what is happening um, and conveying that to viewers, but it can be very challenging. And um, so, yeah. And what was, sorry, what was your second question? Oh, um, was it complicated by being there during the monsoons? Well, we actually stopped right before uh, the monsoons hit. And so as soon as we were done, then a few weeks later is when the monsoon came. And so, 
we were stuck in this place where we realized how important it was to get the story out about drought, but also understanding how people, if we were releasing it during that time, I think a lot of people would have amnesia and say, oh, well, you know, it's fine now because it's raining. So we were also stuck in that place of, well, we want to make sure that this story has impact and people can see and understand it and feel it. Danielle, similarly, I, I want to know a little bit about your process in deciding which stories to tell and and which voices to focus on with a, a, a project as large as this and and as large as the, the beginning to the end of the river. How do you how do you go about finding the folks to talk to and realizing, oh, th- this is the story. This is the way I'm, we're going to focus on on this section of the river. Well, and and I won't lie to you, there was a lot left in my notes. Um, There was 14,000 words published, and there are 17,000 words that are not. (laughs) um, Bless my editor, Marisa DeMarco, by the way. Um, But that was one of the core things that Diane and I discussed very early on in this story, is not just capturing voices about drought, but making sure that this was... Um, really a connective tissue story. There are, you know, folks here in El Paso, where I currently live, um, are checking the weather every day in San Luis, Colorado. But they may have never seen that river from that perspective. And and same things with, um, and same things with also trying to understand the river does not have borders, but we put borders on it, right? In in El Paso, it is the center of the river is the you know dividing line between the U.S. border and Mexico. Um, the river crosses um, back and forth and back and forth across the state lines. And it, it goes through, of course, um, tribal nations. And so we definitely were like, we need to you know, we organized the story at the end for my own sanity from Colorado, New Mexico and Texas perspective. But truly, um, that was not how the reporting process happened. We traveled the river at least three times, um, going back and forth and trying to, to really ensure that we captured a lot of people. And we were there in person. And that was a big focus of, of trying to meet people in person where they were in this space. And um, those were just some of our philosophies, but we wanted to focus on, on, on the storytelling aspect. And one of the lucky things that happened to me was I met Estela Badia, who many readers met at the very end of my series, who described the death of the Cottonwoods from her childhood in, in El Paso, Socorro, Texas, and the drying of the river. And her perspective really helped open up that we wanted to speak with people who weren't hydrologists all the time. Love, love the hydrologists I talk to. They're very smart. They know what they're talking about. But we wanted to talk about people's experiences with the river. And it's funny because Diana and I have our own, right? I mean, my first introduction to the Rio Grande, which was nearly in my background, backyard outside of Los Alamos, um, New Mexico, was falling into it. My dad accidentally pushed me in before I could swim, but I just stood up and I was a little kindergartner and my head goes way above the water. It's maybe only chest height. And so there was no real danger in the year of 2002, another really terrible drought year coming off of the biggest wildfire for a long time in New Mexico, which is now dwarfed 
by all of the other wildfires that have raged around it. But that was one experience with my Rio Grande. And so talking to people about their own childhood experiences, talking to them about their spiritual experiences with the Rio Grande was really valuable. Danielle, you just mentioned a wildfire year. And of course, New Mexico had a crazy wildfire year last year. Is Did you see the effects of those fires on the river at all? Yeah, well, Diane and I were shooting actually for um, uh, at the at La Percha, which is just south of Elephant Butte Dam, um, and that was the Black Fire that was burning at that period. And actually, portions of our reporting trip were, you know, portions of tributary reporting that we thought that we might want to do um, was not available because those roads were burned out <laughs> or currently being used in emergency situations. So um, the feeling that you got watching the smoke like fill the sky and, and blacking out the Caballo Mountain right off of Caballo Lake, even that was really stark. And do you have a sense of how those fires will affect the river the watershed, right? Like the health of a river is often determined by the health of its watershed. These, you know, sponges and these purifying filters, right? That the trees often offer also shade, soil, <laughs> um, these, these really intercombined systems. And so I don't know how the fires will entirely affect it. I have guests, right? Like, of course, we've seen increased flooding, the, the, the rupturing of people's relationships with the river, like acequias and, um, and, and ditch building. But there was one really stark moment for us as well, just driving into Colorado. Yeah, I think, yeah, sorry. I was going to say that uh, I had, I actually living out of New York city right now, but, um, and travel down to, with, to partner with Danny on this amazing project. But I hadn't been back to Colorado in a very long time. And in my mind, I still pictured it as lush, filled with trees, beautiful, the sound of birds. But when we went up there for the project and we turned like this corner and into the forest and I gasped and I looked at Danny and she looked at me and we were like, what happened to the trees? Because it just felt so ominous and the trees were like little toothpicks about to catch on fire because they there was no uh, foliage. And it was kind of a reminder to us about how much has changed in our lifetime and how even something like that has completely been ravaged by climate change. And it's happening and it's happening now. So then getting back to the hydrologists and the ecologists and, and biologists, um, what does all of this mean? And you mentioned the, the salinity changes. What does it all mean for the fish and the birds, presumably, that eat the fish and, and so on up into the food chain? Silvery, silvery minnow watch was uh, one of the, the things that we did on our project. Um, and, and so we traveled with folks from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And we watched as four people single-handedly try and do what's called fish rescue. Um, and, and the folks there are like very well aware of the work that this is and also that it's not working. And so what happens is the Rio Grande 
is not just dry below Elephant Butte. In the summers now, it's been drying for larger stretches through mostly farmland um, south of Albuquerque. And it turns to, to sand bed overnight. We lost 18 river miles um, in the June 12th through June 13th um, just day. Um, and so what happens is that then folks go out um, for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and their mandate is to help rescue the silvery minnow, an endangered, very small, not very charismatic fish. <laughs> um, but what happens is what's left behind is all of the other fish, um, native, non-native, drying in the, in the beds with it. And so to, to quote Thomas Archdeacon, fish need water. But the people are also saying that we need water. And so there's a real question of priorities there. And that was one of our our tougher assignments, I would say. It was very stark and very heartbreaking. So what does this what do you see for the next five to ten years on the river? What projections are being made and um, what do you think will happen? I don't know. Um, unfortunately, I think that we are in a trend of, of drying and drying faster and drying harder. And then what happens with that becomes more vulnerability to other dangers. Like when we do have sudden, more intense storms, they flood faster. They're more destructive. We're having significant issues with silt, um, that are, is harming infrastructure like dams, like canals. Um, we're having compounding issues with salt and salinity in this, in particularly the southern portions of the of the upper Rio Grande, which could threaten crops within not just a decade, but like maybe faster. But we're talking about we're talking about these existential threats from all sides. And the Rio Grande isn't just agricultural water, it's drinking water, it's ecology, it's a spiritual, it, it is like, it is a, it, it holds all of these places and it's drying. <laughs> and like, I don't know what happens when that happens. I did want to say that it is, um, it has been special though to see how each section of the river, there's people doing what they can to preserve a space within it. And so, you know, you have people in Colorado, like um, Kyler Brown, who's trying to implement greener practices in his farming and cutting back on certain um, crops. Whereas in, you know, in New Mexico, we talked about the fish rescue and, and these people trying to save what remains of these silvery minnow. And then in Texas, you have people like John Sproul who have created this little oasis with the Rio Bosque Wetlands Park. And even though, you know, it's still very segmented, you know, each person's doing what they can um, in their respective parts. I think that that's honorable. And it's I hope that inspires more of us to get involved with the river. And maybe collectively we can come together to save its future. It sounds like this is uh, in some ways a microcosm of what's also happening on the Colorado, that fundamentally this is a question of cutting back on water usage drastically is it just a question of who and how fast and getting folks to the table? That is a, like a huge 
political question. And I'm, I'm glad you, that you asked it. And I'm glad that you pointed out that this is what's happening on the, on, on the, on the, on the Colorado river. Um, folks in, in <laughs> folks on the Rio Grande have sometimes felt really overlooked. We have been facing essentially these dire numbers. I, I just want to point at elephant feud, our largest reservoir has been consistently since like 2014 fluctuating at about 18 to 13% to 11% of capacity. And while I totally understand that there's a lot more people, right, like 42 million versus the 6 million that live here on the Rio Grande, um, these questions of what to cut, who gets cut, when and by how much are dire and are immediate and are just happening. (laughs) And, um, And so that's actually one of the, you know, that's a really interesting question because the, the, the Rio Grande occupies so many spaces and occupies all these spaces that we put borders around. And so those conversations are happening, but there is still this sort of looming question of like, well, what will be the answer and what will be the outcome? And, and no one's lining up right now saying, oh, sure, here's 20% back tomorrow. Well, um, there certainly have been cuts and they haven't been necessarily voluntary, right? I mean, we have had um, large numbers of acres being fallowed and or people leaving the agriculture industry entirely in in El Paso because it is no longer sustainable for many people to be planting the things that they relied on, onions, um, cotton, and instead you have to pay for more expensive and intensive crops like pecans. And, um, I think that the other problem with the river, right, is it's at different existential points. Like the river has not run and does not run south of Elephant Butte and the river is drying, right? Of course, north of Elephant Butte and the river runs, but it's very small. And then there's all these, you know, compact, right? The, the sending of water to downstream states considerations further north. But I think what's really important is that we did get to highlight people having these conversations like in Colorado with the round table meetings that people have hosted out there to bring together folks who have not spoken to each other and were not on good terms in terms of water sharing and water usage and changing the basis of those relationships. It's not to say that, um, you know, to quote, you know, Nathaniel Coombs, who is uh, the Conejos uh, river manager, it's not all Kumbaya and there are sometimes skunks at the picnic. But for the most part, people are on board with actually starting to talk about it. So, Danielle, I want to circle back to something that you mentioned earlier, which is that you reported out this series, I'm guessing, mostly last year because it started coming out the beginning of this year, 2023. Um, Of course, we've seen just a record-breaking snowpack this year. um, Or not record-breaking, but (laughs) we've seen a lot more snow than anyone expected. Um, and you mentioned that you're, you, you guys are thinking about how that affects how your reporting is landing. Do you have any sense of how it's landing and, and more broadly, how people are talking about this issue right now? Um, given the snowpack, um, do you feel like there's a lot, a loss of urgency in any sense, um, due to this like high precipitation winter? No, I, I, I think we're finally having those conversations with people that go beyond bad water year, good water year. People say drought, right? Like folks who 
folks who haven't talked about it before say drought. And I don't know if that means people feel like they can change it. I don't know if that's more of an act of nature uh, rather than the decisions that people have made to change the river's ecology, to change the way that it runs. And I hope that more people are talking about it. Um, The good news is that a lot of folks in southern New Mexico were very excited to read stories that are reflecting a larger picture of the river. And people have been very kind in emails, um, (laughs) which is a little strange considering I often report on climate. And, um, And the other delightful thing is that people have started to meet the folks that we got to speak with on the river and shared things like, wow, I would really love to sit down with this person and talk. And I do have a hope, right? That that means something. Diana, same question to you. Uh, What do you see coming out of this? I would hope that more people fall in love with this magical river. You know, there's still so many aspects of it that we can, that we can change. And I hope that through these stories, people get encouraged to go out there because people won't mourn what they didn't know. And they must get out there to see the beauty of it before it's gone. I think that's where we'll leave it. Uh, Danielle Prokop, Diana Cervantes, their series Crisis on the Rio Grande is at Source New Mexico. Uh, there's, There's a link in the show notes. Thank you both so much for this conversation and for your reporting. So happy to be here. Thank you for having us. Our good news this week comes out of New Mexico, where a Navajo community called Tohajali is set to get clean drinking water from, you guessed it, the Rio Grande. The water in Tohajali currently comes from the Rio Puerco and contains rust and hydrogen sulfide, which make it highly corrosive and give it a rotten egg smell. But soon, a seven-mile pipeline will bring Rio Grande water to the community. The project has been in the works since 2020 and is being funded by the Navajo Nation, federal COVID relief money, and state and local funds. Construction is set to start this summer. Well, I love it when an episode comes full circle like that. That is it for today. Thank you for listening. Uh, Please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening so other folks can find us. As always, get in touch. If you have questions you want us to explore or feedback, that email is podcast at westernpriorities.org. Thanks again to Danielle and Diana, and thank you for listening to The Landscape.